0: Hi, my name is Aiden Webers, and I'm from Castaic, California and a student at Biola University. I love listening to COMPELLED because I love hearing about God's work in other people's lives. When I'm going through a season of uncertainty in my life, I'm often encouraged by listening to the stories of others. They remind me of God's faithfulness and that He is actively working in my life, even during the times when I don't see it. And the stories shared on COMPELLED show that so well. I hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: They got on the phone right away and made a bunch of demands. Philippine military, of course, surrounded the place and there was shooting, shooting, shooting. These A 10s came in bombing the place. I thought we would die there. I was pretty sure we would. We were just gonna die.
2: I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming Christians around the world. Last week, our guest was Lauren Smith. Early on, Lauren and her husband felt called to adoption and foster care, but had no idea how many children God would place in their home. And I guarantee you, their journey is unlike any other that you've heard. Again, you can hear that story by tuning into last week's episode with Lauren Smith. Today, we are officially halfway done with Season 5, and our episode today is going to be a little bit different than our usual show. We're going to air one of our exclusive behind-the-scenes episodes, which are normally reserved only for our monthly Patreon members. Normally when I record an interview, we'll have a conversation that's around two hours long, which is probably way longer than what you want to listen to normally, which is why we added our regular episodes to be much shorter. And then of course we add narration and background music and sound effects and all the other cool things that make a compelled episode. But that also means there's a ton of great material that we end up trimming out. Stories, insights, teaching, and more that we normally have to make the hard decision to leave out due to time constraints. But our behind the scenes episodes include all of that material. We still do some slight editing to remove interruptions or bathroom breaks, but for the most part, it's pretty close to the original interview. No narration, no music, just a conversation. And normally only our monthly Patreon members get to hear these special behind the scenes episodes, but this week we wanna share a special one with you. Our guest today is Gracia Burnham, a missionary to the Philippines who was kidnapped at gunpoint by terrorists and held hostage in the jungle for ransom. She endured every hardship you could possibly imagine, including gun battles, beheadings, and starvation. Yet Gracia was continually confronted with one question, Was Jesus asking her to forgive these men? We originally published Gracia's story as episode 30 of Compelled, which is much shorter, but now you can listen to our entire conversation right now. And just a reminder, if you have been blessed by listening to Compelled, would you prayerfully consider partnering with us financially and helping us continue bringing these stories to life? When you join as a monthly Patreon supporter, you'll get access to all of our behind-the-scenes episodes and early access to the next week's regular show. To get started, visit slash donate And now, settle back and listen to our behind the scenes conversation with Gracia Burnham. All right, well our guest today is Gracia Burnham, and Gracia, I actually was familiar with your um story back in 2001. I was 11 years old. And I remember hearing about you, I think it was in World Magazine. And, mm-hmm. and as a, an 11-year-old kid, like, I can't remember if we were actually praying for you or not, but I wouldn't be surprised if we were. <laughs> so That's neat. But, but it's really shocking just like to see you face-to-face, yeah, though. Yeah, nice
1: to meet you, it's finally. Nice be, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh.
2: Well, would you mind, um, can you just kind of walk us through your early life? And then, uh, and how you came to Christ.
1: Okay. My dad was a pastor, a very learned and godly man. And um, so, I grew up knowing the gospel in our home. Family devotions was a big deal at our house. And uh, I came to know the Lord very early on because of my godly upbringing and grew up and went to Calvary Bible College in Kansas City, Missouri, Calvary University now. Okay. And met Martin there.
2: Okay, great. And, and tell us about Martin.
1: Um, he had transferred in um, from New Tribes Bible Institute, uh, just with a Bible degree, and he was getting his aviation degree there, missionary aviation at Calvary. And, um, I was actually the dean of students secretary. I would graduated, and he was in charge of one of the dorms, and he had a rowdy dorm, and he would end up in the the office a lot with guys, and so I got to know him, and I just liked that he was very different. He wasn't trendy. He was just, you know, MKs, those third culture kids are very, um, they just kind of march to the beat of their own drum, but they're very nice kids, and... So we started spending time together, and got married, and moved to Nebraska, where he did um, he did aerial spraying. Yeah, uh, yeah, as a pilot, crop dusting. Yeah, so he could build hours and just get a lot of um, a lot of experience that he was going to need on the mission field because he grew up in the Philippines. He was a missionary kid, and to get home on. Um, breaks and like Christmas break from boarding school, they would fly in a small missionary airplane into this tiny strip up in the mountains. So he knew what it was going to take to learn to get a Cessna down and get it stopped in the next few hundred feet. He knew what it was going to require. So he just started practicing and um, getting all the training he could in the airplane. And yeah, yeah. Okay. And yeah, we got married and I knew he had a heart for missions and was so glad when God directed us back to the Philippines. He wanted to go anywhere but back to the Philippines because he knew people would remember him and they might not trust him with their lives because he was a and, kid when they knew him <laughs> he know. was a kid and he thought oh these older missionaries aren't wanna, gonna want to get in an airplane and do this dangerous flying with this kid that they saw grow up so but of course that's where our leadership with new tribes mission aviation wanted us to go so yeah uh now, now such when you, a good life when <laughs> when you say
2: dangerous flying uh, can you describe for us why was it dangerous? Like for for those of us who have not been to the Philippines or are oh. unfamiliar with jungle flying, what
1: what's well, so unique? Well, um, New Tribes Mission uh, it has changed its name Ethnos three hundred and sixty now. I don't know if you know that, and uh, that name works better for us now. And we work with people out in the middle of nowhere, where no roads go. Um, where you have to hike for days to get in there. And they found that a good tool to get missionaries into a village so they can live there and work there is a small, build a small landing for an airplane. And they would have a radio in there. And so think of everything you need for a month at your house, they would radio out and tell us what they needed. And we would buy it and box it up and fly it into them or their homeschool materials or um, doing medical evacuations for villagers who needed an emergency surgery or something. So the the airplane was the link. So when you make an airstrip on the side of a mountain, there's not a lot of room. you yeah. know you have to find the perfect conditions and sometimes you can't. So some of the, Strips he flew into were like 350 feet long, with, um, you know, sheer drop-offs on each side. Wow! So, uh, you have to know how to get a plane down on the touchdown, and usually gun it up the mountain, yeah, to the turnaround, and don't overshoot the turnaround. It was very tricky flying because there are optical illusions as you're landing and. Uh, yeah, it was it? It wasn't easy flying, but of course Martin loved what he did. You know, pilots love to fly. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. he was good at what he did too.
2: And what was your role on the mission field?
1: I just sat by the radio while he flew, and flight followed him in case he went down or had an issue. We would know where to look for him. And I homeschooled the children there. And of course, the Pilot family was the party house when people would come out for a break. You know, they wanted pizza and someone to visit with them late at night and play Risk till midnight and and goof around. So our house was the house where people came for just a good time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's fast forward through time. You had been in the Philippines for many, many years. Can you just kind of walk walk us through what what happened in the anniversary and everything? And mm. and this whole this whole interview is edited, also by the way. So uh-huh. you know, we'll we'll patch up any you know hiccups sure, or anything no like worries. that. Yeah.
1: Um, so we'd been in the Philippines sixteen years. Our three children were born there, and. Um, Martin was asked by our leadership to become the chief pilot of New Tribes Mission Aviation Worldwide, and he didn't want that job because that meant he would have to, we would have to move back to the United States. We wanted to stay in the Philippines, so he um, went back for, for bargaining meetings, sort of is what I call him, back to Arizona to tell him we really don't want to do that. We want to stay in the Philippines. On his way back from that trip. Um, One of our pilots on a southern island had a family emergency, and he had to go home for a funeral. His father died, and he called Martin and he said, You know, I've got lots of flying to do, lots of translators and checkers and visitors who need to go into these tribal areas down here on our island. Would you come do my flying for me? And um, Martin said, of course, I'll do that. And he called me and said, I I can't come home. I've got to go fly for Jerry. So I cleared my schedule and left our children with our coworkers, our neighbors. And um, I went down to Palawan to help him. I knew he would need help. He would need somebody to cook and take care of the visitors that were coming through. And uh, we told the kids we'll be home in one week. Hmm. And while we were down there, um, Martin had jet lag, of course, from his trip across the ocean. And he knew that he needed some some naps before he started to fly yeah. to be safe. And he called. Um, we called our coworkers and said, where's a good place to go just to rest so Martin's ready to fly? And they said, oh, Dos Palmas, you'll get lots of rest there. It was sort of an island resort that... People did went out and did the touristy thing, and we'd never done anything like that down there. We always just ran down and did our work and came back. So we booked into Dos Palmas. And
2: and it was your anniversary also. It, right?
1: it, it was our anniversary, and that's how we justified the cost yeah. to go out there, because um, uh, it was about $120, which was way too much for us. And we thought, oh, our, our anniversary's coming around. That's... Um, We'll treat ourselves for our anniversary uh, instead of getting a little room in town or something.
2: And how long have y'all been married at this point? Uh,
1: 17 years, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's right. Uh, um, So we went out to Dos Palmas and we weren't even going to be there 24 hours, just a quick overnight and him getting some rest before we took the the launch, the boat back to the mainland. And um, that night, night, uh, well, before dawn the next morning, uh, there was pounding on the door and bang, 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 and Martin headed for the door. And even before he got there, these three guys with M16s broke the door in, and one of them took Martin right out. Um, One of them came over to the bed, and he lowered his weapon at me and yelled, go, go, go. And I said, no, no, no. (laughs) I'm not dressed properly. Um, Grabbed what we'd worn to the beach the night before, cut off shorts, a T-shirt, and they took me out, too. And they were emptying all of the cottages that were built on stilts out over the ocean. It wasn't just us. They Mm. took like 20 of us and just kind of herded us down to this waiting speedboat and as we pulled away from the dock, they raised their weapons in the air and yelled, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. And that's when we knew who had us. Everybody in the Philippines knows who the Abu Sayyaf are. They're uh, militant Muslims who've declared jihad hmm. in that area of the world. But their jihad has sort of degenerated into a kidnapper ransom group. And we knew we were in big trouble and for the next year, we were in big trouble. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah.
2: What, what, if we go step, just step backwards, like the moment that you heard the pounding on the door, mm. like what was going through your mind? Well,
1: what I thought was oh, a guard is drunk again. Because we'd been to resorts before, you know, all over the Philippines are these little places where you can go spend the night by the beach and your meal is whatever the fishermen catch that day. And it's very simple and, um, you know, we'd been to those places before yeah. and people get drunk and sometimes it's the guards because people are there partying, right? Yeah. And you don't know what kind of resort you chose or it, you don't know who your neighbors are, yeah. so I thought, oh, one of our neighbors, you know, had too much to drink, and um, but it just kept up the beating, bang, 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 and I, um, there'd been some talk the night before about we needed to shift to another room, and I thought, oh, the the person who thought they had this room. They're here this early yeah. in the morning. What happened? I don't know a lot of, but certainly not that terrorists were out there. Yeah, you know that someone was going to come in with an M sixteen and hold it to our heads.
2: And as soon as they entered in with the gun, did you did you immediately know? Oh, these are terrorists. Or
1: well, no, I, I knew we were in trouble. Oh, um, you know, yelling go go go, and that's the only English they knew. Go go go. Oh, move. They said that go 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 move. So we moved. Oh boy, we left everything behind. I grabbed some flip flops on the way out the door. Um, I was so proud of myself that I had the, the presence of mind to grab flip flops for us. Yeah. Um, yeah, what we had was the clothes on our backs, nothing else.
2: Wow. How, how many people, how many other people were kidnapped?
1: There were about 20 of us. Mm-hmm.
2: 20 of y'all yeah,
1: Mostly Filipinos who were on vacation There were the wealthy Filipinos There were the not so wealthy Who had really sacrificed to be there There were three Americans Me and Martin And Guillermo A Peruvian born American um, And um, I'm sad to say They beheaded him about a week into our captivity um, Just to kind of prove that they really were serious about this whole hostage thing.
2: Wow! Yeah. Wow! So, so when they kidnapped y'all, their purpose was for ransom money.
1: It was ransom money, but they told Martin and I, um, "We'll deal with you last. You'll be political prisoners. We'll make demands of the government." of the government through the negotiators and they'll make concessions and then you can go home. So um, they treated us differently. And if I knew what I know now about them, I would have said, oh, no, 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 no. You give us the turn on the phone as well to call our loved ones so we can get a ransom going because that's what everyone else was doing right everyone else was calling their loved ones and telling them how much money they needed to come up with and even um the the numbers of the bank accounts to put the money into you know they everybody just started in but martin and i we just sat back because they said we'll deal with you last and um yeah, they sure did. <laughs> yeah, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so walk us forward through. Uh, I, I know you had a very long journey in the in the jungle mm. for, for over a year. Mm-hmm. Can you just walk us through some of those first days as it was really hitting you? Like
1: mm. we've
2: been kidnapped.
1: Mm. Well, the first days was on a. a boat, a fishing vessel. They took us away in a speedboat, but there really wasn't room to cope on that speedboat. So, all day long, they took us out over the ocean, and of course, we didn't know where we were going. And um, on towards dusk, they commandeered a a fishing vessel, Hmm. so there would be more room for us. So, on the fishing vessel was, what, 10 fishermen, more Abu Sayyaf. There were probably about 10 of them that took us hostage and there were probably maybe 10 20 more on the boat that was a lot of people
2: and then 20 hostages also
1: on that yeah it was a lot of people and we didn't know who was who right right away we knew who the hostages were but we didn't know who the the fishermen were who the the Abu Sayyaf were so we were just trying to be quiet and um stay safe the first few hours cuz we'd been through this little hostage taking course, I don't know what you call it, a safety course that our mission agency had asked us to go through and they had said, you know, those first few moments are the most important when you just need to comply. And so you stay alive because that's when everyone's trigger happy and the adrenaline's r- rushing. And um, and then they'd kind of told us, you know, just be quiet, watch, listen. And of course, we didn't know the languages that were being spoken amongst these guys. They were speaking the Southern Muslim dialects like Jabakano and Taosug, and we didn't know. We'd never heard those dialects before, so we were just trying to figure out what was going on. So just kind of being quiet and um, letting it sort of play out. Um, Not to say we weren't scared to death. We sure were. Uh, Yeah, and the difficulty started in, you know, right there on the boat. At one point, um, there were fishermen out there, of course, and uh, we didn't have anything to eat, so at one point they covered us up with a tarp. Well, this is the tropics; the sun's just beating down on you, and the tropical sun. You know, we were just in this hot house on the bottom. Yeah. the The bottom of the of the boat, and of course we had. Gone pee in the bottom of the boat. There was no bathroom, oh, man. and at one point we'd all been taken from our beds, and we told him we need to use the bathroom, and so the only place to go was on on the floor of the boat. Oh man! So um, here we were with this tarp over us, sweltering down with ick, sitting in ick, oh. and um, so it it wasn't nice. But they covered us so they could come alongside this fishing vessel and and ask for food or, you know, buy food. And I guess I wasn't up above, right? I guess they stashed their weapons, but...
2: To just pretend they were normal fisher, fishermen or something? I guess so,
1: but you know what? Yeah, it'd be nice to talk to someone who... Was on that fishing vessel, right? Yeah. What were they thinking?
2: Yeah. What about when you made, how long were you on the boat?
1: I think five days, if I remember right, a nice long time. Yeah. And um, of course, it's the ocean, so you can't drink the water. So the only water to drink soon ran out because they had drinking water for 10 people, not 30, 40, however many people we had on the boat. So they had, uh, the catch was down covered with ice. So as the ice melted, you know, that the fish were in, that oh. was our drinking water. Oh, it man. was, you know, you just kind of gagged as you drank it, but you had to drink something. And yeah, for the, the year, that was the hard thing, drinking water.
2: Uh, really?
1: Yeah, always thirsty and and drinking dirty river water and um whatever you could come up with we drank yeah one day uh, we were desperate in desperate need of water and we came across this little pool of water that had gathered in a you know a rock was shaped kind of funny there was an indented place and so this stagnant water was there and as I dipped my cup of water, there were leech eggs in it. And I thought, you know, God sent us this water, <laughs> you know? I, um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was nothing nice about the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah for sure.
2: What happened when you made uh, landfall eventually? I-, I assume they were taking you somewhere.
1: They were. We didn't know where, of course, and we were trying to watch. Martin was trying to figure out what direction we were going. So, when it was all over, he could, you know, tell the authorities this is what we did, and he was really good at that. He was kind of the camp historian, actually. Martin was. He was pretty smart. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, one night we got close to land, and we were just going up and down the shore, and. Um, nothing. Then we went back out into the, you know, the main waters, and then the next night we did the very same thing. And on the shore there was some lamps, some lights. Oh, that was the signal they Hmm. were waiting for, that their companions were there on the shore. So they pulled in as close as they could, and we just got off into chest high water, and waded to the beach and um, started hiking in the dark. Uh, Yeah, it was dark, of course. Um, They did all that at night. And we were hiking in the dark and Martin had lost his flip-flops, of course. Um, They had, I don't know, what happened to those in those five days on the boat? I don't know if someone took them or... Anyway, he had lost the flip-flops so, he was hiking barefoot. Um, I soon learned that hiking at night in flip-flops is not a good idea because you're going uphill and downhill and you're wet and you're dripping into your flip-flops and they they won't stay on your feet anyway. Yeah. So, I ended up holding them and walking barefoot as well. I think everyone ended up walking barefoot except, of course, the Abu Sayaf. They had boots on.
2: Yeah. And And then when you got... Got on land. Did you think, oh, this is this will be better than? Yes, the we time were of the boat. so
1: excited when we got to land, because land meant, uh, you know, the cell phones would work and they could talk to the government negotiators and they would make concessions and we could all go home. And I remember asking Martin, "How long do you think this is going to last?" And Martin said, "Oh, you know, six weeks. That should be long enough to." Um figure all this out, right? Six weeks. So in my mind, I added a few weeks. Okay, 10 weeks, we're going to be in here. And oh, that's the summer. And then we'll have spent our summer in the jungle and we'll go home and go back to ministry. That's what I thought.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about um, when you got to the hospital, tell us how Mm. that developed.
1: That was early on in our captivity. Uh, We... We'd been walking late at night is when we would walk, and um, we'd already had our first gun battle.
2: Oh, sorry. Let's back um, up. Tell us about that first experience then. <laughs>
1: um, so we were all excited because we were to land, and there would be food on land and water and shelter, and all this could be you know, figured out. Right, so we were all pumped because we were on land. Yeah, and uh, that first day on land, the military found us. We had our first gun battle, and we had to learn to drop and crawl. Um, when when someone's shooting at you, um, you lay flat on the ground so you'll make the smallest target you can make, and um, the Abu Sayyaf would fire at the military, and we would get up and run, you know, or crawl, like Marines in training, crawling, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when there was a volley of, un- of gunfire our direction, we would drop, crawl if we could, get in a gully. Um, so that was our first experience with a gun battle, and it just freaked everybody out.
2: Had Had you ever been shot
1: at before? Oh, of course not. The normal person. Hasn't been been in a gun battle. Yeah. You know, you don't train for for that kind of thing. And, and you don't even have training for it. I mean, um, yeah, you don't take that class in school, do you? No. Uh, wh- what do you do when somebody starts shooting at you? So that was so discouraging. And I think it was that same day we were running for our lives from the military, got away from the military and ran into a swarm of bees and the bees started attacking us. So here we were running again from another enemy. (laughs) Um, And we thought, oh, this is going to be bad. Uh, And it was. So just several days into being on land, um, They came up with a jeepney. A jeepney is sort of a small Filipino bus with um, seats along the edge. And um, a jeepney pulled up where on the road we were late at night and we were all tied together. (laughs) So um, getting in the jeepney, no problem. We were still all tied together. We just sat there, but there were too many of us. To all get on the jeepney, too many hostages because they needed the guys with the guns. So I noticed that they left three of us um, off to the side. It was the employees of Dos Palmas. There was a cook and a couple of um, you don't call them bodyguards, what security you, guards, security guards uh, that they'd taken. They left. They separated them off to the side and. Uh, we headed off at breakneck speed on this jeepney, just lurching around uh and suddenly realized, you know the guy driving the jeepney didn't really know how to drive it <laughs> yeah, and uh I asked Martin, uh, do you think you ought to volunteer to drive this thing? <laughs> you know, obviously he doesn't know how to how a clutch works or yeah. hasn't figured it out well." Well, they figured that out, too, and changed drivers, and (laughs) we were just headed who knows where, and we suddenly pulled up in in the courtyard of a hospital and went, went, um, well, they said, go, 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 move, right? Some of the English words they knew. Well, we were tied together, and somehow we didn't go out like we came in, right? In an orderly fashion, because they were yelling, go, 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 move, pointing their weapons at us. And we got all tangled up because we were tied together together and ended up you know, falling on each other and we were being dragged. And um, I think they realized they shouldn't have tied us up together because we took a long time getting into that crazy hospital. And when we went in, there was just chaos. It was chaos in there. The The guys were um, breaking the windows. In the Philippines, they use jealousy windows. I don't know if you know what those are. They're these little panes of glass that open and close uh, with a lever, hmm. almost like the, the blinds we use.
2: Almost like these blinds, like yeah. Like
1: those, only um, they're, they're wider and they're glass and they just, that's what they use because at you know, at the pull of a lever, you can have some air. Yeah. So these jealousy windows, they were just taking the butts of their guns and just running them down the the windows, breaking every pane, glass everywhere, shouting, yelling, screaming, because the nurses were on duty. Uh, they were going into, you know, imagine just having surgery in a hospital and all of a sudden into your room burst these men with M16s. So screaming panic and they put us in a hallway and uh, we were in the hospital for for about a day. Um.
2: Summer is here and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a Compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they wanna do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry and include skits, real life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course, women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. And what was their purpose for breaking into the
1: hospital? Well, who knows? They I think they thought Because of the Geneva Convention, right? We would be safe in a hospital. So they got on the phone right away and made a bunch of demands. Uh, You know, money and this and that. And the government response was to cut the phone lines and cut the electricity. And that made them really mad. I don't know what they expected. What? (laughs) Like, like, sure, Whatever, just yeah, just be still. We'll bring you yeah. whatever you're asking for—your millions of dollars or whatever.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but they weren't expecting for them to cut the electricity and the phone lines, and that—that that made them really angry. So then the Philippine military, of course, surrounded the place, and uh, there was shooting, shooting, shooting. And um, they began bombing the hospital.
2: Where you guys were, you, the Where hostages, we were in there.
1: They started bombing it. These A 10s came in, bombing the place. So there'd be a bang, and, you know, here'd be this fire. And the Abu Sayyaf would go running down the hall. We had hostages on each side sitting along the wall. And they'd go running, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me,
2: as the terrorists terrorists
1: were excusing themselves as they ran ran down the hall with their fire extinguishers to put out these fires that the bombs had caused. And I thought we would die there. I was pretty sure we we were just going to die there in the hospital. And at one point, they came and got Martin, and they said, come with us. And I thought, oh, no, you know, just dread filled my heart. They said, we want you to call call your mission agency, because they'll know how to get in touch with the embassy, and they can stop this bombing. So Martin went out and called New Tribes Mission Headquarters, and um, at first they didn't think it was Martin, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's me. and uh, call the American embassy, tell them to tell these guys to stop bombing the hospital. We're all going to die. And, um, yeah, and, you know, to get out of there, um, well, we know now that they bribed the military. Someone's ransom came in, um, and I wasn't out There, but what I heard was the some of the Abu Sayyaf sort of dressed up like military and got a jeepney on the outside. Uh, You know, because there's Abu Sayyaf all over the Philippines. It wasn't, you know, they're not confined to this group, and they all had cell phones. So another group of Abu Sayyaf came in dressed like soldiers came to the checkpoint and just waved and said, you know, we're we're soldiers, we're headed we're headed to the fight, but um, someone's ransom had come in. So they brought in one of their wealthy guys, ransoms, and someone slipped that out the front door to the military. And asked them to pull back. Wow. And, you know, this wasn't the first time this had happened. This happens all the time in the Philippines. It's business as usual. So they knew the game, right? So the military took the ransom, pulled back, and we escaped out the back door. And I remember thinking it was really weird because as we were leaving the back door, gunfire started in. And one of the guys commented to the other in English, because that's all I speak, right? Mm. He said, they're not supposed to be back here.
2: One of the terrorists well, said that. One of to... the terrorists
1: said that. They're not supposed to be back here. He said, you know, okay, let's just go. And so, there were wounded um, in that gun battle. And I learned later it was the Kafka. It's kind of a, a a group of men that the Philippine military have deputized to keep peace if you know what i mean sort of a
2: like a mafia kind of thing not
1: ex- um but i wouldn't use the word mafia i would use um, who, who are the weekend warriors here in in the states the um you know you go for a weekend and you and they um and they call them up if there's a disaster or oh, something like
2: the national guard
1: Thank you. Okay, Sorry. not mafia. Okay, not
2: mafia. Definitely,
1: <laughs> it, it would be more a National Guard, but they're not soldiers. They're just civilians who've signed up for this. Um, we're going to keep our area safe. So they issue them guns and they kind of keep their ear to the ground for peace and order issues. Mm-hmm. So no, they're good guys, right? Um, but they were the ones, I guess they didn't know the plan, right? They didn't know they were supposed to pull back.
2: They didn't know they'd been bribed. They just thought, oh, here's our opportunity to...
1: Yeah, let's wow. rescue these people.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> what what so, happened to the, the three guys that had been left behind when you guys got in that jeepney?
1: We heard later that the three guys who wouldn't fit on the jeepney had been beheaded. They're just in the ditch. And um, one of them... They botched the beheading, or he survived it. Um, and he's still alive today. They, um, they found him the next morning, still living in the ditch with his head severed you know, not totally off, but oh my goodness. Um, and he's still alive today. Yeah, wow. I found him on Facebook a while ago. Um, wow. yeah, his day of grace. It, isn't over is it Hmm. it's like god's given him a day of grace
2: yeah let's take a moment and tell me where, where where did you think god was at this point like all this chaos is going on this is definitely not the anniversary trip that you were planning on what did you think god was doing
1: well at first um we we were sure that um god knew where we were um there on the boat, um, the fishing vessel was kind of like this ecumenical service, right? Because as the sun was setting, the Abu Sayaf started their bowing down, praying towards Mecca. The Catholics started in on their rosary. The um, you know the Protestants said, you know, Martin, would you lead us in prayer? And um, Martin's prayer was so sweet. Um, You know, God, you know where we are. This hasn't taken you by surprise. Um, Give us peace in our hearts. Give us grace to endure. Be with our families who are going to go through this trial, you know, just so calm and cool. And that's how he always was anyway. And everybody realized that Martin knew how to pray. And he (laughs) he became the chaplain and would pray. And so at the beginning, you know, we, we knew God has this. Um, that first night on, on the fishing vessel, I had just been to Faith Academy's graduation the day before uh, in Manila, where Martin had attended, but he wasn't there because he was still on that flight from the United States. And the, the choir had s- um, sung Be strong, be strong, be strong in the Lord, and be of good courage, for I am your God. Be strong, be strong, be strong in the Lord, and rejoice, for the victory is yours. So I, you know, was singing that to Martin, and um, yeah. So at first, you know, when you're first going through a trial— maybe your faith is really strong but reality set in when people started getting ransomed out because they were rich and then the atrocities started right at first they told us you know would we ever steal from you of course not where the quran forbids that and we all relaxed. Oh, these are honorable men. Would we ever touch your women? Of course not. The Quran forbids it. So we thought, oh, all the women are safe. These are honorable men. But what we saw happen was you can't keep the law. You know, even if you make up the law yourself, um, you can't keep the law. And yeah. the longer we went, of course, they stole from us. Of course, they touched the women. All of a sudden, the men were um, had these women in their power, and they decided to make them their booty of war, because the Koran says you can do that. So, all of a sudden, of course, this this the head guy decided he wanted this girl, and then one of his under leaders decided he wanted this girl. And then soon it was just, you know, whoever you wanted. that oh. She became your booty of war.
2: Were you in danger of that?
1: Uh, I thought I was in danger of that. And we really prayed against that. And um, they liked Martin right away. Within the f- first few hours, Martin started building friendships with them. Um when we were on the speedboat at the beginning, Martin, we throttled, they throttled back because we were getting bounced and, you know, airborne and just being bounced around and we were exhausted just from being out on the ocean with the waves and they throttled back to get us a little bit of a break from that. And um, Martin started... Helping the guys with the watches that they'd stolen from Dos Palmas. From you guys. Uh, yeah. Like their, their booty. Um, they were staring at these watches and they didn't know how they worked. And Martin said, oh, um, I'll help you with that. And he he said, um, oh, look, this one has two time zones. You can put it to Manila time and Mecca time, he said. <laughs> he was helping them. Just building relationships mm-hmm. right away, so they liked Martin, so they didn't touch me hmm. um, and I was married the the married girls, though that whose husbands weren't there, became booty of war as well. Wow. Uh, they called it Sabayaing they yeah, the girls just had to live with them, sleep in their hammocks and yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, while we're talking about the Abu Sayyaf, could you just describe what what were these guys like? Like, I, I've read a little bit in your book, but I just want to hear your own description of them.
1: Um, if I were to describe them, I think um, I would almost use the term the lost boys, you know, like um, Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. Um, not little children, but... Teenage early 20s guys who, for one reason or one reason or another, um, life hadn't gone the way they wanted it to, or, you know, everybody had a story of why they were there. And um, So they weren't jihadists really bent on jihad except for a few of the uh, the leaders. So you had the leaders who were bent on jihad and running this whole show, and you had these guys who, for whatever reason, one guy uh, wanted to get married. He'd fallen in love with a girl in a neighboring Muslim village, and the dowry was... 20,000 pesos, I think they said, $1,000 or so. Well, how's this young kid whose dad is a poor fisherman going to come up with $1,000? It's impossible. So he joined the Abu Sayyaf in hopes that a ransom payment would be made, and he could go get married to his sweetheart when Uh he got his share of the ransom. Um, Several of the kids, I counted the children that were my children's age one day, and there were 13 of them.
2: That were Abu age S-
1: nine through fourteen.
2: That were Abu Sayyaf. That were
1: Abu Abu Sayyaf members. Some of them carried weapons. So uh, one of the kids, he just didn't want to go to school anymore, and so he ran off, and joined the Abu Sayyaf. You know, these were kids who should be coming home to warm milk and uh, warm cookies and milk after school, right? Um, kids. So it was hard to. Um, uh, it, it was hard to group lump them all into, you know, these are all terrorists. Because some of them, um, um, I remember after one of our first gun battles, suddenly there was kind of a new guy there. And we were sitting near him. And he said, I never wanted this. He, he said, they came through our village. They asked for three volunteers. And if you don't send three volunteers to be in our group, we'll behead some of you. He said, I was I was the sacrifice from, from the village. He said, I never wanted to be in the Abu Sayyaf. I don't even believe in this stuff. So they all had a story, right? And that's what we saw right away was um, for some reason or another, they'd found themselves in this situation. And some of them, I think, realized we were all in this mess together. We were on opposite ends of the battle, weren't sure why, and we were all scared, and we all wanted to go home, except for the leaders. Uh, They knew how things worked, and they were bent on jihad. And some of them were there because they were bad guys. We tried to start talking to them, figuring out, What were their ideas of God? Why were they here? You know, just kind of learning their stories. And some of them said, um, well, some of us are here because we're bad guys. You know, there are rules if you're a Muslim. The way you get to heaven is by working hard. You pray five times a day. You wear the right clothes. You eat the right foods. You give alms to the poor. You make a trip to Mecca. Uh, There's a whole book, a thick book of all the rules that you follow in hopes that at the end of time, when you get, when you face the judgment, Allah is going to take all your good things, you're praying five times a day, wearing the right clothes, all those rules you followed, He's going to weigh that against your sin. If your good outweighs your bad, You go to paradise. If your bad outweighs your good, you go to hell, which is exactly what a lot of Americans believe. Yeah. (laughs) That God has a cosmic scale up in heaven. He's putting all your good things on one side and all your bad on the other. And you hope that at the end of time, your good outweighs your bad. You know, scripture says if there's one thing on your bad side, you can't enter heaven. God's holy, He cannot, He will not look on sin. And That was the point when Jesus died, he took our sin on himself, but he didn't just take all our sin, he traded us his righteousness for it, and now we're totally forgiven because of what Jesus did, and that's something a Muslim can never know, forgiveness, there's not any. And so imagine you're this 18-year-old kid, who Muslim kid, who has slept around, which is forbidden. You've smoked cigarettes, which is forbidden. You've drunk alcohol. You've not gotten up at dawn every morning to pray. You've been lazy and stayed in bed. And you know, you suddenly know that at the end of time, your good is not going to outweigh your bad. And your only recourse is to die in jihad, because if you die in jihad, you bypass that iffy judgment. You go straight to paradise. And a lot of them said, we're here because we're bad guys. We need to die in jihad. Martin asked one kid that we really liked one day. Um, Martin said, um, wh- what would make you happy? And he said, uh, if I could die in jihad, I would be happy. Hmm. And Martin didn't know what to say. He said, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray that, that you're happy.
2: Hmm.
1: Of course, thinking, you know, happiness comes when you know the Lord. Yeah. Doesn't come
2: from dying
1: in jihad. jihad. That's going to lead to eternity separated from God. Um, And years later, when, you know, of course, when I was rescued and the... FBI was debriefing me and the CIA and the State Department and the Justice Department and all these people were just debriefing me in meetings like we're having, you know, all day long. Just, And um, they showed me pictures of some of the guys who died the same day Martin did. Mm. And I just kind of burst into tears. They were just rolling down my cheeks and... The FBI agents said, "Why are you crying? These are bad guys." And I said, um, "These guys are in hell. <laughs>
2: mm.
1: I, there's their day of grace is over. There's no hope for them." And it um, the the seriousness of the situation, uh, yeah, huh. very very sad. They've bought into this religion that the enemy of our souls has had a long time to figure out what works, right? Yeah. And he set up this crazy religion where all your life, you you don't know if you're good enough. You try and you try and you try, and there's no peace, and you carry this heavy burden of your sin with you, which is why... They said 80% of Muslims who are coming to the Lord today, and all over the world that's happening, Muslims are coming to Jesus, 80% of them have a testimony that they have a dream or a vision, and a man in white comes and he says, come to me, you who carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And they think, there's rest out there somewhere and they don't know how to find it but they start asking god to can we have can we have rest for our souls and scripture says if with all your hearts you truly seek me you are you will surely find me says the lord and someone has the courage in those muslim nations to share the gospel with them or give them a bible and the Holy Spirit starts working in their hearts and in their lives when they read what's true and when they hear truth, and they come to the, to the Lord, and they're suddenly so happy to know freedom, and they become really good Christians. <laughs> they become so bold yeah. because they've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, and they know what that feels like, and they've been... Stuck in this kingdom of light where you're free and 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 you have a God that loves you and instead of is counting all you know ticks on the wall for everything bad you do, and they just fall in love with the God of the Bible, yeah, because he's so different from from the one they've served. yeah And they've been so disillusioned. And I just kept thinking, you know, if these guys, if these guys could just know Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of them knew the gospel. They'd heard Uh, it before. They'd heard it before. Growing up in the Philippines on their islands, of course, there were believers and there were churches and um, several of them during high school had been in. Involved in youth groups at these churches, and had heard truth. Uh, One of the leaders of the group, Abu Sabaya, could quote John three sixteen. He said, uh, "There was a day. He said, I went to this youth group because I just fell in love with this girl in my high school class, and so I started going to church with her. And there was this day I, I." heard what Christians believe and and I was ready to accept it and they started having um communion and I knew that if I went forward it would change my life forever and he said instead of going forward for communion I made a decision and I ran from there and I bought into the Muslim faith as my own. Sabaya made a decision. God was working in his heart, and he squelched that. Hmm. And um, What happened to Sabaya? Sabaya died about a week, 10 days after Martin did. They were desperate. By the time our rescue or that final gun battle happened, we were this ragtag, exhausted team of people because most everybody had gone AWOL. You know, they got out of there. At, at one point, there were 80 Abu Sayyaf, 20 hostages. That's a lot of people to feed. And we were starving, and they got sick of it and disillusioned, and everybody, one by one, would just take their weapons and go home. We would wake up, and there'd be 10 guys just gone one morning. So we dwindled to, there were 17 of us, 14 Abu Sayyaf, three hostages at the end. Wow. And we were starving. We hadn't eaten in 10 days. I didn't know you could go that long without food. Uh, we had water, and we had salt, and we were just at our wit's end, and... um so uh we had that final gun battle and I was rescued Martin died there on the hill and so did the other hostage and the guys retreated down the river well after I got out I met with you know the president of the Philippines and Philippine military and I said, you know, these guys are desperately trying to get off this island because they're in big trouble. You should be watching the shoreline, because um, so they um, they started watching the shoreline. And about ten days after our rescue, these guys tried to escape off that island in a boat, and the military um, had helicopters. And boats down there, and there was a shootout on the water, and Sabaya died in that shootout. Hmm. He got what he wanted, right? He wanted to die in jihad. He got it. Hmm. Yeah. So sad. Very sad. And you multiply that by hundreds of thousands, who um, who have no hope for their souls. And Muslims right now are our greatest opportunity. They're coming to America because they're sick of that. You know, they're sick of the, the terrorism, and they're sick of having to live in under oppression, and um, they come to America for a better life, and and what they want is what we want—a f- a free place to live and a place to raise your children, and that your children will be safe. And they're here, and we have the opportunity to share the gospel with them, because they expect us to. You know, everybody talks about what they believe, but when I see a Muslim, that's kind of the. The last thing on my mind, right? When I see a lady covered in the mall, um, the last thing I think of doing is going up to her and saying, have you ever heard that Jesus loves you and can take your sin burden away? (laughs) Would you like to know about that? Uh, You know, plant some seeds. And um, so God's bringing the world here. And uh, maybe we should take opportunity to let some people hear the gospel that otherwise would never hear it.
2: Yeah. I, I think you bring up a great point because I think um, it can be so easy to dehumanize mm-hmm. people. And, and even like when we think of terrorists, terrorists mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We have in our mind like, oh, everyone is this you know bearded guy who hates everyone. He's going to behead every Christian he sees. Mm-hmm. And in reality, like they're just humans, right? Mm-hmm. And some of these are young guys, young kids, teenagers. Mm-hmm. And some of them are what I just described, but some of them are not.
1: Uh-huh. That's right. And, and you, you don't know a person's story till you sit down and talk with them. And how many Muslims have I had it at my house? None. Because <laughs> it takes courage. To invite someone over to your house and make yourself vulnerable, right? Because you don't know what side of the fence that person's on. Um, so, yeah, it's probably time to take some opportunities since God's bringing them here. And people sometimes hear me tell my story and and they say, Oh, what you have is, um, you've heard of the Stockholm Syndrome, where a a person takes on the grievances of those who are holding them hostage. And it's a true, that's a true phenomenon. Um, We watched it happen. It happened with us. Every once in a while, Martin and I would say, okay, um, who are the bad guys here? The bad guys are the ones feeding you. They're the ones sheltering you in a gun battle they're the ones taking care of you who are the good guys the good guys are the ones shooting at you because it became all mixed up and um you know i watched some of the young girls who are being held hostage start you know liking the abu Sayyaf because you know they're teenagers right and here's this cute teenager that's carrying a gun and you know this macho teenager and and one girl, I told her, you know what, it, you be careful. These are the bad guys. And she said, oh, they've never done anything bad to me. I said, are you kidding me? Your parents right now are probably selling their home in Manila to get enough money to send it to these guys so you can go free, not done anything to you. Um, so that Stockholm syndrome is alive. It truly is a thing but i think when you ask god to change you cuz what i saw happen to me was i saw myself i when i realized this wasn't going to be done in 6 weeks the real me surfaced i started hating those guys i started being filled with envy at them when they had food and they didn't share it with us i you know all these horrible things just raised to the surface it was shocking yeah and um and i asked god to change me and i think there's a difference between the stockholm syndrome and when god changes a heart and gives you love for your enemies and gives you forgiveness and teaches you to trust him cuz you're sure he's doing a good work and um i think god changed me in the jungle because you can love your enemy for a minute or a while, a day even maybe, and then you go through a village and they chop some guy's head off. Uh, what, forgive them? No, they're dirty rats. And they do it again, right? Your enemy does again to you what they did before, and all those feelings resurface. So you can forgive for a while in your own strength, but it doesn't last. But when God changes a heart, he changes a heart, yeah and I love that about him. Old things are passed away all things are made new only God can do that
2: well, let's touch base on that what was there a can you tell us about the particular moment or event that led to you having that turning point asking God to change your heart
1: well the, the there were lots of turning points because um, me, I was sort of this roller coaster of emotion. You know, one moment, God, you've got this. You know exactly what's going on. You know exactly what you're doing here. And I'm trusting you. And two minutes later, God, do you even know where we are? (laughs) Have you forgotten us? But no one knows where we are. We're going to die here in the jungle and nobody's even going to know what happened. And it was this roller coaster of a ride for me. So, but a moment that I think back on was about week 10, because Martin had said, I think we'll be here about six weeks, and I'd given God about four more. And week 10 came and went, and no, no rescue, no negotiation was working. And I started thinking, um, you know what? Um, God doesn't love me. Um, why does Scripture say? If you will ask anything in my name, I will do it. Why is that even in the Bible? Because I was asking and he wasn't doing it. And it, questioning God's love and God's word just kind of threw me into this pit of depression and anxiety and questioning. And it really got bad. And one day I went to the river to just sulk. Sulk. And Martin came and sat by me, and he said, "Gracia, I'm just so sorry to see you giving up your faith like this. I said, oh, I'm not, I'm not giving up my faith. I still believe God made us. I believe he's almighty. I believe he purchased salvation for us. I just think God doesn't love me, because if he did, I wouldn't be in this mess. And Martin said, oh, Gracia, I think either you believe it all. Or you don't believe it at all. He said, you've got to decide what you believe. Is God's word true? Is he good? And um, so we started going over all the verses about love, because that's what I was dealing with, right? I have loved you with an everlasting love. With loving kindness I've drawn you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, um, started just quoting verses about God's love and I thought, "You know what? Maybe it's not working for me." Like we we all have this wonderful plan for our life, right? <laughs> and we think God's supposed to come through and make it happen. And I thought, "You know what? I need to just believe that God's word is true. He says he loves me. Doesn't seem like it. I don't feel loved. I don't feel blessed." I don't feel like I'm in the heavenlies with Him, but Scripture says I am. Either it's true or it's not true, and I'm going to choose to believe it's true. And it's like in that moment, God put it in my heart to start asking for things. Ask for forgiveness in your heart since you can't do it yourself. Ask for love for them. You know, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long suffering gentleness, goodness, those aren't things you make happen in your heart. Those are gifts from the Holy Spirit of God. And I started asking for him. And uh, he did the work. And that's what I love about him. God's in the heart-changing business. And that's what he does well. And he He, he does it for our own good to establish us and give us a future and a hope and and life abundant we have life abundant even when we're going through this horrific thing that was just plopped in our laps or some some self-inflicted trial right yeah. sometimes we do stupid things and all of a sudden we're at the bottom and we think how did that happen you know take heed lest you think you've got it all together you're going to fall and, um, and we find ourselves at the bottom, and there's nowhere to look but the Lord, because we know that that's the only thing we've got right now. Yeah. And I love that about Him.
2: If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to The World and Everything in It. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Recently, my family has been enjoying Redeem TV. They're a Christian streaming service that's ad-free and fee-free, with over a quarter million subscribers spread throughout the world. We love their wide selection of movies, documentaries, and children's programming. And their library of edifying titles is always growing and is sure to have something for you. For your next family movie night, I encourage you to visit RedeemTV.com Or download one of their apps to your device or smart TV and start streaming goodness wherever you go. And don't forget, they have no fees and no ads. Get started at RedeemTV.com.
1: So, it just went on and on and on, and we ended up at the year mark. And who would have ever thought that this nightmare would continue for over a year? And we were just very, very low. And um, one day, Martin saw this little kind of transistor radio being passed around amongst the guys. And he got up the courage to ask Abu Sabaya if we could listen to the radio for a while, you know, borrow the radio. And they let us have it. So we were searching around looking for anything English-speaking, you know, Voice of America, who gives the news all over the world, Uh, just something to hear some news. And we came across KNLS. It's a, a radio station out of Alaska, Christian radio. And we tuned in just as a pastor from Nashville was reading the verses about how Christ sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Hmm. And he said, if you could hear Jesus in the next room praying for you right now, you would not be afraid of any enemy. And then he went on to pray for people who were in war-torn areas and who are being oppressed by enemies. And Martin and I looked at each other with big eyes. You know, that's us. He's praying for us. And then the program was over, and it went back to music, and they came and got the radio. And it's like the first outside input we'd had, spiritual input, in, in a whole year. And it was like God just let us hear the right thing at the right time to encourage our hearts, that you can come boldly to the throne of God with with your requests. And Christ sits right up there praying for us, because sometimes we pray wrong, or sometimes we don't know how to pray. We're in a situation we can't even get the words out, but that doesn't matter because Jesus knows how to pray. And He's making intercession for us, and we can come boldly to the throne of God. And it was so good. God just gave us that little shot in the arm to keep going. And it was just a few days later when all this just came to a head. That final gun battle, our 17th gun battle, is the one that Martin died in and that led to my rescue.
2: Yeah. Before we go to that gun battle... um... I think there was another story that you had about um, um, Easter. A, a ransom. There was. Yeah. Do you mind sharing that?
1: Um, yeah, right about Easter time, uh, someone paid a ransom for us, and you can imagine the excitement when some of the money came into camp because this was it. <laughs> it's what we'd all been waiting for, and we could all go home. And everybody was talking and packing up and the Abu Sayyaf leaders had a big meeting, and they called me and Martin over, and we sat on the ground with them, and they said, uh, someone's paid a ransom for you, but we've decided it's not enough, and we're going to ask for more. You know, bad guys are bad guys, and they don't follow the rules. And by that time, the, the group had split. Uh, some of the guys had gone back into the city because they were Sick of this whole thing. Then there was this small group of us still out in the jungle. Well, the FBI had delivered the ransom money. The CIA knew where we were, but those two entities don't like each other, and they didn't, they didn't talk to each other. So they delivered the ransom to the guys who didn't have us out oh, in town. Goodness. And they just sent a little... Penance, you know, a little bit to the guys who had us. And that that made them really mad. So they were going to ask for another ransom that would come straight to them. And so even the ransom, what we'd been begging God for, even the ransom didn't work. And we were so discouraged and laid down that night on some rice sacks, you know, sacks that hold rice. They're kind of. Um, woven little sacks. Those were our beds hmm. often. And we would just lay our heads on them to keep them off the dirt. And we lay down on our rice sacks that night. And Martin kind of nudged me just as I was drifting off to sleep. And he said, um, I'm so glad, Gracia, that when Jesus paid a ransom for us, it was enough. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, Jesus' payment for us on the cross was sufficient. It satisfied God. There's nothing charged against us anymore. Jesus paid it all and it's enough. And Martin just did that over and over. I would be at in the depths, right? And he would point me again to the Lord. You know, he just did it over and over. I I didn't know what sort of man I was married to. I I knew he was a neat Christian, but never understood his Christ likeness till we were just in this awful situation and he did that so often Mm. pointing me to the Lord
2: Mm.
1: and he left me with um, parting words I guess a charge at the end Um, we hadn't eaten in 10 days walking through the jungle just so discouraged and rag ragtag team of people and um we'd heard that another ransom had been paid for us and was waiting at this elusive village that we couldn't find we were just wandering around lost we couldn't find the village well what we didn't know was there was no second ransom and there was no village mm. That's why we couldn't find it. But they had said that to give us value, to keep us alive. And um, so this day, um, we heard the military behind us. We'd we been resting and um, had crossed a road the day before, after it had rained heavily. You know, the tropics dumps rain, and we'd crossed this road, and the next day, the The military had seen our footprints and started following us, and we realized we were being followed, and we found food that day, unripe nanka fruit, jackfruit growing, and we just gorged ourselves with it and kept going, and I was so discouraged, and I told Martin, "Um, I I don't know how much longer I can do this. I said that all the time, and he said, "Um, oh, Gracia, I think we're going to get out of here. I just don't know when. Let's just keep going and see what God does. And then it clouded up to rain, and there were certain unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military. Um, They never fought at night, so you could move at night, and they never fought in the rain. Everybody just hunkered down in the rain and waited for it to pass, so there was never pursuit in the rain. So it was clouding up to rain, and we thought we were safe, so we set up our hammocks and our plastic sheeting that would shed the water, and we um, laid down for a rest, and Martin said to me, Grace, I've been thinking about Psalm 100 all day long, especially that first verse that talks about serving the Lord with gladness. He said, this does not seem like serving the Lord. We've been walking through this jungle for over a year. But let's by faith accept that that's what we're doing here, that we're serving the Lord here. And let's do it with gladness. And we laid down for our rest. And minutes later, the military, they didn't stop for the rain. They came over the hill and they opened fire on us. And Martin was dead. It's like his last words to me, serve the Lord with gladness. You know, a person's, Last words are very important. Everybody wants to know what what their loved ones said at the end. And that's just kind of become my, my life's theme. I'm just going to do what God calls me to do, uh, figure that out, <laughs> do it with my whole heart, do it with gladness. So thankful for that charge at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
2: Did you, did you re- realize right away that he had passed?
1: Um, right away when they opened fire on us, um, I was hit in the leg. So I dropped from the hammock, you know, because that's what I'd been taught to do, right? Make a flat surface. and But it was so slick and steep. We were on the edge of a mountain and I slid down the hill And came to rest beside Martin, and I looked at him, and he was bleeding from his chest. And I knew from experience, you know, leg wounds might heal. Chest wounds don't. And he lay there um, just almost snoring, breathing really heavily. And um, then his body got heavy. Have you heard that term, the weight of death, I think that's what I was feeling, but I didn't really know. I just felt him get heavy, but I wasn't sure he was dead, and then I don't know how long that gun battle lasted, 10, 15 minutes, and then the Abu Sayyaf retreated down the river, and the military came down the hill to rescue us, and... Um, I started moving my hands around so they would know I was alive. I didn't want them to shoot me. And um, they started dragging me up the hill. And as they dragged me away from Martin, I looked back, and he was white. And that's when I knew he was dead. Mm. And they got me to the top of the hill and um, called a helicopter. And... The helicopter came in, and even at the top of the hill, there were some funny things that happened. Um, this young young man, a soldier, came up to me, and you know I'd been wounded, and he said, um, "Ma'am, I am the medic, and you are my first patient." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, great! Right, <laughs> I have this young kid." I'm his first patient. So he kind of wrapped up my leg, and then he looked at me, and he, he said, um, is there anything else? And I said, um, do you have a Tylenol? <laughs> so he started asking around, you know, asked all his friends, do you have methanamic acid, they call it. Do you do you have a methanamic? And somebody came up with a Tylenol and gave it to me, which I probably shouldn't have taken because, you know, hindsight, I was going to be operated on soon, right? Thanks, you're and and they, they don't they don't want you to have anything in your stomach in case you aspirate. But, you know, who was thinking about that, right? It was just hurting, so I asked for a Tylenol. And then they called the helicopter, and even then, when they, they said, ma'am, a helicopter's coming for you, and I said, no way. I said, the, you know, the ridges are... The ridges aren't clear. The ridges are clouded in. He's going to have a... I was used to calling weather for Martin. I know when to call an airplane and when not to call an airplane. And I was looking at the ridges, and they were clouded in with rain. And I said, enough people have died today. Don't have that helicopter coming. he just looked at me like I was from Mars. And he said, uh, ma'am, for you, the helicopter will come. Mm. <laughs> so, And it did, and... They flew me out and some of the guys, the military, that had been wounded in the battle. And we left Martin laying in the rain. I thought, you know, this isn't how it's supposed to be. But by then I'd ha- I had things settled with the Lord. Um, I was a different person. My kids will tell you, a different person went into the jungle and came out. They said, they'll say, um, you know, my our mom was always on to us. She wanted us to be perfect. And if we weren't perfect, she would yell at us. You know, I wanted the perfect family. And we were the homeschool family and um, wanted everything to be perfect at our house. And I was so black and white and so rigid and so... Mean to my children, let's be honest. Hmm. And um, I came out and I wasn't mean anymore because I had seen myself. I saw myself for what I was. I saw my sin and I realized God's grace. And I didn't care anymore if the kids went to school with a messy bedroom. I wanted them to go to school with a clean heart. I wanted them to know that their mom loved them. The bedroom has nothing to do with whether your heart's clean or not. Mm. Um, One day, Zach, my youngest, was down in the basement with a bunch of his friends. And I came down the steps just in time to hear Zachary say, The best thing that ever happened to me was my mom getting taken hostage. And I said, Zachary, and he looked over at me and he said, Mom, he said, oh, he, you know what I mean. <laughs> and I said, yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> you have a mom that shows some grace now. I knew what he meant. And I'm so thankful that um, that for one thing, I came out changed. You know, God did it. Wouldn't it be sad To go through this horrific trial and come out on the other end, just the same way you went in, or worse, bitter, angry, um, blaming, wouldn't that be sad not to have learned some life lessons? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, hopefully I've learned some life lessons.
2: (laughs) Wow. Thanks for sharing.
1: Yeah, you're welcome.
2: You know, uh, Martin just sounds like a a really incredible guy.
1: I wish you could interview Martin. I wonder what he would say. I would love to hear his side of the story and, uh, you know, hear him put into words what God did in his heart. Hmm. Um, Yeah. But I'll see him soon. And, you know, I came home and would go to everywhere I went there was a a microphone stuck in my face. And they had warned me about that. The American government is so good about that. Um, They sent a counselor, um, quote unquote counselor, everyone that's been taken hostage, they send someone to talk to them from the US. And this guy had come from an Air Force base in Washington state and he knew Jesus. And it was so good. And he gave me bits of advice, but something he said was, Gracia, go home and make the the media your friend. Don't think of them as your enemy. All they want is a sound bite from you. They want three or four sentences from you so they can go back and give it to their boss, and they can go do the next thing, right? Make it your plan to make them successful, and you can say anything you want. He said, Put things on a three-by-five card and carry it around in your purse. And when somebody sticks a microphone in your face, just be ready, and they'll love you. And so I went to this thing in downtown Wichita, and a, a girl was interviewing me and was said the very same thing. Martin sounds like such a nice man. And I said, yeah, and and I'm going to see him really soon. And this look of horror came over her face. She said, What do you mean? And I said, oh, um, life is a vapor, right? Our life is really, really short. I'm going to see Martin really soon. Eternity's a long time. Life's really short. And what you decide here on earth determines your eternity. And she said, oh, oh, yeah. Um, You know, just a little thing to, to get people to think. If you can just... Point people to the Lord, even if you don't do a good job of it. You know, you don't have to do a good job of it. Years later or moments later, you can think, oh, I should have said to that person, da 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 da, you know, uh, God bless you. He has good things for you today. Look for it. You know, a simple, you don't have to preach the gospel every moment. Yeah. Can, it can just be the way you are. And I've had such good opportunities to lift up the Lord, because that's the point of this story, right? Mm -hmm. God's glory is the point of this story. People love stories of endurance and overcoming, but the point is, God's great, and God has a plan, and God can do anything, and He makes us strong as we follow his plan and trust in him. That's the point. And he gets the glory at the end. So, yeah. Hopefully, that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Amen. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs>
2: We're talking about the seeds that have been planted. Mm. Can you bring us up to speed? So, well, let me take a step back. So, you've written a couple books. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one was called In the Presence of My Enemies. Yeah. And that you wrote that shortly
1: after? Yes. Uh, they. Tyndale, uh, one of Martin's best friends from Faith Academy, um, Doug Walton, had, he and his wife had been supporting Martin and I all our years in the Philippines. And he's one of the vice presidents at Tyndale House Publishers. So, that was a no-brainer, right? So, they wanted the book right away. Yeah. So, we wrote the book and it became a New York Times bestseller. I think the fact that 9-11 happened while we were in the jungle, I think that really propelled our our story to the top. Yeah. And everybody knew about it because these guys were Al-Qaeda trained. And, um,
2: and they're fighting for jihad and the yeah, no spotlight. Yeah, all
1: that was in people's minds. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the story of our captivity and what God did.
2: And then you've written a second book. Mm, Tell us about uh-huh. that one.
1: Well, Tyndale asked for another book, and I said, oh, I said it all. And they said, oh, wouldn't it be sad to, to miss what did God do in your heart? How did God ch- God change you through that hard time? So, To Fly Again is more of a devotional. When you go into a tailspin in life, um, seeing God's goodness in it, and how He changes you when you go through hard times. Yeah. So, a, a lot of people have said they have loved that book. Because um, we all go through hard times. Yeah. And often, people will just pour out their hearts to me because they know I've been through a hard time and they want to tell me about their hard time. And I just can always point them to the Lord, even if I don't do a good job of it. And you know the weird thing, even when I'm trying to hide and not be you know, I went on vacation a while back and I just went somewhere where no one would know me and I didn't tell anybody where I was. And I just kind of hid. And I I went to a country music show thing and this lady didn't even know who I was. But during the intermission, she came over and just poured her heart out to me. And I thought, is there something on my forehead that yeah. that makes people share their burdens with me? It's Maybe it's a huge blessing, or maybe mm. it's a huge curse. I don't know. Yeah. But um,
2: it's almost those God has selected you and like said. It's
1: the weirdest thing. I can be walking through the grocery store and someone else, you know, they'll start whispering to their companion, you know, there's Gracia. And then they'll come up to me and just, you know, our daughter's 18 years old and she's just pulling away from us and seems very. Far from the Lord, do you have any advice for us, or you know, just right in the middle of picking what cheese you want? Yeah. Um, But who else gets those opportunities, right? You just take your opportunities and yeah, and encourage someone and point them to the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: As we were starting this interview, um, you alluded to the fact that some of the Abu Sayyaf. Things have happened. Can yes. you, you want to share about that? Oh, tell well, tell us the story that about would, that.
1: that. It would be dumb to not tell you the rest of the story. Um, well, um, it's a long story, but I I started a foundation because when I got home from the jungle, people started giving me money, more money than I'd ever seen. And I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't think it was for me. And um, someone wise said, if you start a foundation, you know, get your pot out there. And when people give you money, it goes in the pot and you can give it wherever you want. And so we, we did that. And um one of the first things our foundation did was we printed a comic book series, 13 comic books on the lives of the prophets, those men that Muslims believe to be prophets, you know, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, on through Jesus. Um, this comic book, beautiful in the Tausug language. Tausug was what many of the Abu Sayyaf spoke. Well, some of the first people to get a hold of it was... A couple that does prison ministry in Manila. And they took those comic books into the prison and gave them away, and the guys loved them. But they said, What's happening here is these guys found out Gracia Burnham printed these. Some of them are coming to us saying, We're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held Martin and Gracia captive. I said, Well, ask them their names. Here came the names. Guys, we knew. We'd walked with them, starved with them, lived with them. We know them. And um, so I thought, this is from God. And we started getting together and figuring out ways to bless those guys, projects we could do in the prison, and ways to share the gospel in there. And uh, so far, four former Abu Sayyaf have come to know Jesus in the prison— A fifth one I just learned about several months ago, I was in Dallas speaking, and a pastor in a very rural area of the Philippines knew that someone was going to come and hear me speak, a Filipino couple, and they said, tell Gratia about this new family we have in our church. He was one of the leaders of the Abu Sayyaf. His whole family has come to the Lord. They've changed their name Move to a new area, and they're trying to grow in their walk with God quietly while they can. Because someday, if someone recognizes him, he needs to pay for his crimes, right? And um, so that wasn't the fifth person wasn't just one person; it's a whole family. Wow, has come to the Lord. Wow, and you know that had nothing to do with me, Um, but God's letting me see what's happening. You know, in in his in his economy, yeah, he's letting me see what's happening. I think just to encourage me, cause he loves doing good things for his children. Yeah, yeah.
2: Just to clarify, the Abu Sayyaf members who have come to Christ were any of them the direct captors that you had? Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, the four that have come to the Lord in the prison, I know them well. Wow. Um, a couple of them. Well, one of them for sure. I've been told, is a secret believer. He's afraid to let people know that he's become a believer because, you know, those fingers, those jihad fingers are really long and they could, you know, it's against right their religion to change, right? If you change, you're supposed to die. So he's afraid for his family as well. But well, I've been able to even find some of these guys children and send them to school and
2: wow it's
1: a good story of god just god doing a work you know it's all him um yeah he is our refuge he is our strength he's the lifter of our heads and he's the one that gets the glory yeah
2: amen yeah amen um, I think we've covered everything. I, we've covered a lot. What, what time do you have?
1: I have about a quarter to twelve. A quarter to twelve. Um, so, surely you have enough for a show. I oh I, I, <laughs> I have I, so I, much. This not, is
2: great. You know, yeah. like I'm gonna turn around and like we're gonna make three shows out of this, you know. <laughs> no, I mean but I mean you really have just an incredible, incredible story to share. I it think it's is. really profound.
1: It's this weird thing that happened to us that we never would have chosen. And people always come up and say, you know, knowing now what you know, would you choose to go through that again? And I think, no way. I, you know, no, I want to grow old with my husband. <laughs> um, Martin was a good pilot and he was doing a good job, and we could ha- be having a fruitful ministry somewhere in the world. So I'm glad that we don't get to choose, because we choose wrong, I'm glad that God has the plan in mind, and I realized long ago that God didn't sit wringing His hands like we did Hmm. for a year, and every time something would go wrong, they would tell us, you know, Friday, you're going to be released. And we would believe it. And Friday would come and go, and we wouldn't get released. And you know, here was this roller coaster, ah, Friday. And they'd say, Next Friday, it's gonna happen. And I would get all geared up for next Friday and it wouldn't happen. And but God wasn't reacting to things that went awry in our story. Um God orchestrates things. And I used to say we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And my sweet friend Marcia <laughs> reminded me, "Gracia, you weren't in the wrong place at the wrong time. You were in the right place at the right time. And you know that's just kind of mind-blowing, right? It just blows your mind that God had that planned for us. And his plans are good to give you a future and a hope and to prosper you. And his plan is to establish you and make you strong and make you a voice for him. So I think of, you know, Syrian refugees right now who have fled their country. They have nothing to go back to. And they've, they're living in horrific circumstances, but they're sharing their faith, and they're bold, and they're praying with their enemy. You know, they're in these camps where there are Christians and Muslims, and to share your faith is maybe the end of you, and um, God's using them in the midst of their icky mess and God's doing something in the midst of it. All over the world, He's doing that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for You're sharing. You're very welcome.
2: <laughs> My wife and I interviewed Gracia three years ago, before the pandemic, which basically feels like a lifetime ago. But we still think back to that conversation. To endure hardship is one thing, but to forgive your enemy is another. Yet what Gracia will tell you is the only reason she's been able to forgive those who took so much away is because of a God who gave all he could give. And if he was willing to forgive us for eternity, how much more should we be willing to forgive those who sin against us? To learn more about Gracia and her ministry, visit her website at graciaburnham.org. Or you can visit our show notes where we'll link to her books and website. You can find all of that at compelledpodcast.com. Again, just a reminder, this was a special behind-the-scenes interview, and you can listen to 50 other interviews just like this one when you become a monthly member on Patreon. Get started and get access to all of our behind-the-scenes interviews at compelledpodcast.com slash donate. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode with Andy and Jamie Stewart, a young Christian couple expecting their first child when they received the crushing news that their baby was not going to survive. How could they trust a God who would let this happen? I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday.
0: Just by the ultrasound that he had seen before, I think he had a pretty good guess as to what he thought it was and then just was confirming that when he was there. So it was it was very quick, but he handled it much better. He was really sweet and compassionate. He got down our level, was holding my hand and, you know, said, I'm sorry, but your son is not going to make it. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh.